Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. After decades of public service, Illinois Congressman Mike Bost has arguably reached the pinnacle of his career this year after he became the chairman of the U.S. House Veterans Affairs Committee. And that gives the Murfreesboro Republican a big say over policies that affect scores of people who served in the military. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, Boss talks about his priorities as chairman and other major issues coming to the forefront of Congress. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, an in-depth examination of Missouri and Illinois politics. The instant we got to Illinois, we joined the Green Party. This was 2000. So I've tried to push for those that uh, I think are honest and really care about the future of the city. You know, this wasn't a path that I, I thought I would choose in 2012 when I was able to win the closest Republican victory in the nation. If it's something that will, will help Southern Illinois, I'll work with them on it. If there's something he's doing wrong, then you got to fight him on it. I believe very strongly in the Second Amendment. I believe less government is better, and I believe local control is better. I choose to fight for working families and for union members. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I am your host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio... He covers all things Metro East for St. Louis Public Radio. Will Bauer. And joining us via phone, he is the congressman for Illinois' beautiful and scenic 12th Congressional District. Mike Bost. Uh, Will's actually going to ask the first question about how uh, beautiful and scenic uh, your district is. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of wanted to, to take you back to the last time you were on Politically Speaking, which I which I listened to. That was back in 2018 when you represented a, a much larger portion of the Metro East. Yeah. Um, and it was in the middle of a competitive primary, but now you kind of, you represent a much redder district of Southern Illinois. Um, yeah, it, it, it is the most red district that's ever been drawn in the state of Illinois. Um, it is uh, the district of before was 11 and one-third counties, which included a section uh, of the of Madison County. That was all taken away. It also collect uh, it all. The the former district also had all of St. Clair County. Now the only part of St. Clair County we have everything uh, but the valley. So East St. Louis, Washington Park, uh, uh, actually. A large portion or almost all of Belleville is not in my district anymore. Uh, Cahokia, all of those down at, down in the valley along the river, that is not in the 12th district. So we lost less than an actual landmass-wise, less than an actual county. It was part of Madison and part of St. Clair. But to make that up, it took 24 more counties on the going uh, totally uh, east and then somewhat north and then so it's I now represent 34 counties uh, the bottom 34 counties only two of those counties are partial counties that's St. Clair that I described a while ago and Coles County I have half of Coles County now remember this that uh, uh, the the 
most of those counties have a whole lot larger deer population than human population. Um, it is, like I said, one-third of the land mass of the state of Illinois. Um, it is uh, very beautiful, um, and it is, you know, it includes the Shawnee Forest. Uh, it, it is the largest industry uh, is still Scott Air Force Base, but the second largest, which used to be uh, SIU Carbondale, it's now ag. And so it's now uh, Scott Air Force Base, um, uh, Ag and then SIU Carbondale that is the order of the largest employers in that district. Do you find it ironic that you were the beneficiary of Democratic gerrymandering, in the which the only way you can lose an election from now on is in a GOP primary? Especially given your history that you were running in like a fifty-fifty Democratic district. Yeah, that was yeah, and, and had and had for years and had for years. You know whether it was you got to understand and and my history as far as running. Uh, I was a uh, like whenever I was city treasurer in Murfreesboro. Well, when I was on the county board when I was very young. Uh, there were 14 member county board and only two Republicans. I, whenever I was elected city treasurer, I was the first person in in 60 years that was Republican that was elected to the city of Murfreesboro as a citywide office holder. So it is something strange to me to have a district that is, uh, yeah, just pretty well solid, glowing red. Um, but it it is it is neat because it, they are people that I'm uh, like-minded with. Uh, sometimes maybe not. Uh, as conservative as they would like, but uh, I think I am. Um, I'm, you know, I'm pro-life. That's never been a question. I'm definitely Second Amendment. Uh, I don't. Uh, the big government is not uh, what I push for. I try to make sure that local control is is there as much as we possibly can. So I fit the district pretty well, but it does cause for a lot of windshield time. For instance, I've got a, a political event tomorrow night, and I will be driving two hours and forty-five minutes to to be with them and give about a 15-minute speech, drive two hours and 45 minutes back. But it is part of what it is, and, um, and I, can't, I can't afford an airplane or, or a helicopter, so I guess I'll just have to keep driving. We'll have more. We'll have a couple of political questions at the end. But, okay. Will, we want to we start with your trip to the U.S.-Mexico border. Will, oh, you have yeah. a few questions on that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you recently got back. Um, kind of what, what, what prompted the trip for you, and what did you find out when you were down there? Yeah, there was two reasons. One, um, I feel like it is vitally important as a member of Congress that you do go down and see what's going on, not just hear, it, hear about it hearsay from other members, even though you've seen it on different radio, TV, or heard about it on radio shows, TV shows, uh, seen, the, seen the coverage, but also understand as chairman of the VA committee, it was vitally important because what we're doing right now through the VA, through the VA center down there at uh, Laredo, uh, they are actually have an outpost at Eagle Pass, which is along the Del Rio sector, uh, as well as a mobile veterans unit because we upticked uh, our veterans' uh, uh, chance to provide services, including counseling services, because we've seen a large uptick in the suicide rate among our um, Border Patrol agents, um, and many of those are veterans, so we are able to provide this service uh, and was going down and meeting with them. I met with veterans there as well as, well as patrol agents who are veterans. Uh, but then I did see the sector, you got to understand that uh, Eagle Pass has a very large check station for illegals, uh, so much so that uh, now whenever I was down there, and you're not going to believe that these are the numbers that uh, were going on and they consider that down, they were running three to 600 per day. But their normal time, and, and, and it's going to uptick again, is um, 
2,000 to 3,000 per day that they process through. That's not counting gotaways. Um, and it's that Del Rio sector, the reason why it was down it, to those numbers is, is the water's up to about four and a half to six feet deep. And it's rushing through very, very quickly. And uh, they redirect from the Mexican side which side, where they go to. And they have moved uh, to the west to a different sector where they could cross where the water was not as high. Uh, and all this was explained to me, and the maps were shown, and, and all the agents and what they're dealing with, and you know whether it's the you know trying to make sure that the, the that their people that they take in take into custody are processed correctly, that there are no underage, uh, uh, and there's a whole lot of them that are under adult age that are coming across by themselves. You can't sell them, or, or and it's not really sells. They're holding rooms. I did see this. They're 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 glass fronted holding rooms uh, with they have restrooms that are set up uh, correctly so that. For safety's reasons, the door that goes in the restroom, you can see their feet, and you can see the top of the ceiling above them so that they, if someone would try to get in there and get hurt or some, hurt somebody else, you know, they can monitor that. But each one of the pods has like 10 different rooms in it like this that are all monitored. Uh, they, they, they house them uh, in ways that uh, – uh, and, and, and they transfer – 600 to 1,200 out every day, besides the fact that they're checking in those 2,000 to 3,000. And so it, it is it is a very programmed system, but the bad thing is they know for a fact that, that known gotaways are about 125 to 128,000 a week. What, what are, what, can, you, can you explain what that is? What, what do you what mean? A gotaway no, is? Yeah, what is a known gotaway? A known gotaway is um, because all of the areas are, have a lot of cameras that they all the border uh, down there in that particular sector has a lot of cameras everywhere, whether it's a, that they, they have um, both drones and then they have mounted cameras. Mm -hmm. And so they can't chase them all, they don't have enough agents. So what they'll do is they'll monitor the cameras and they'll make a count of people that they know came across the border and they missed them. Okay, and I got that's I, a known. I got that. So, yeah. what are they saying about why these undocumented immigrants are coming over the border? Like I, I, some would I, I'm sure you're going to say, well, it's because President Biden's lax immigration standards, but also some people would say they're they're fleeing countries that are very violent and you know, they want to get sure. to safety. So sure. I, I, and, and I, I, would, I would I'd be interested to hear the the rationale for sure. this. There's there's several reasons. One re reason is, is that one, they, they are being told in a poor country uh, that they could that, that there's an open border and they can come. And then and it's been been broadcast to them. And they're very, very uh it, it, it's very technical the way they do it. I'm telling you, they they have and and they pay a lot of money to try to get up here. I don't have any problem with them seeking to come to the United States. My problem is is that we need to have a control factor on there because what we're doing by not having a control factor and having them come here legally is we end up getting, which we know this for a fact, some very, very hardened criminals – we some that have already committed crimes, and I, the, the, I saw all the numbers on those. Uh, as many as twenty and thirty a week are coming across that they get. They're actually caught. 
um, from 130 different countries uh, last year alone was what was reported across that sector. Um, and if we would put the controls in, one, we could control that flow of fentanyl that's coming across our borders. We can control and reduce the amount of uh, human trafficking that is going on. We could control and, uh, and, and actually allow people to come through in a legal manner if they want to even try to get their citizenship here. I'm not disagreeing that we need, we need immigration reform. But we've got to have a controlled border before we can do it and do it right. We're the only nation in the world that doesn't have a controlled border. Only nation in the world. I was in, I was in Europe a couple weeks ago uh, on, on uh, uh, some things with the uh, – looking actually with Jordan, uh, with, with our, our allies in Jordan. Their borders are all controlled over there. They know who's coming across, why they're coming across, and it works real well. Our problem is is just this, this – and, and and the sad thing is, you can love Trump or you can hate Trump, but the policies that were in place were working. The stay in Mexico policy, all of these things, it, it, it allowed for people still to immigrate to this nation. It allowed us to still use our migrant workers that wanted to come across. I come from a district that uses a lot of migrant workers. Yeah, that was actually going to be our next question, and yeah. Will, had, Will had a question about that. Yeah, yeah well— just given that you're on the House Ag Committee, I'm, I'm curious, are you getting pressure from ag groups that, you know, may not want as restrictive immigration policy because the ag operations could rely on that migrant or immigrant labor? Let me tell you that that is a, a important thing that we have to deal with when we deal with immigration law. There's, you know, several years ago, there was a Goodlatch bill, uh, then Representative Goodlatch carried two bills. One, uh, good, there was Goodlatch 1, Goodlatch 2. Goodlatch 2 actually they actually moved the immigration laws for our farm workers over to the ag side rather than the immigration side because it is so unique on what we can and need to do there. Uh, with touchbacks back to their home country, uh, all of these different rules were going to be put in place. Those bills did not pass, but those are the things I did support. And we still support, uh, you know, uh, one of the several members uh, of Congress, one of them out of, uh, of Washington State, a good friend of mine, Dan Newhouse, uh, is very familiar with this because he himself uh, has a large farm where they use a lot of immigrant work. Uh, he has cherries and, and apples and um, hops, and the list goes on and on. And he has both uh, uh, workers that have been with him and his family for two and three and four generations that are American citizens, but then you also have the immigrant workers as well, uh, migrant workers as well. And um, so, yes, there's sensible things we can do, but the politics of it has got so bad that, that, that you can't get anybody to sit down and agree on anything with that, even though – as I said, whenever I first got here, the Goodlatch bill and, and one and two, I was hoping we would have got those passed because that was true reform that we needed to be wise about. But the thing is, we cannot do this unless we have a controlled border. And right now, and, and, and when Title 42 goes away, this border is going to go completely out of control. You are the chairman of the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. Um, it, it must be a little strange for you to have this much power over an important uh, policy arena, you know, 
after you spent, you know, what was it, 20 years under Michael Madigan's thumb and didn't really get to do it? 18 of 20. 18 of 20. My first two, we were in the majority. I just didn't know how good that was. I I know. So uh, to to your district, there's a pretty, in your district, there's a pretty important aspect, which is Scott Air Force Base. and And what is at the top of your list as priorities of chair of the committee that could help something like Scott Air Force Base? Well, let me tell you, first off, um, it, and remember, it's not just passing legislation. Quite often, you know, everybody looks like Fraggle Rock that when a bill's passed, all of a sudden it's done and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, no, when you pass a bill, you're going to have to make sure that the agency implements it correctly. So if you remember last year, we passed the PACT Act, which deals with the toxic exposure, which was one of the largest bills ever passed uh, to deal with our nation's veterans uh, that have been exposed to toxic exposure since 9-11. Um, since the creation of that, our oversight of the VA to make sure that is implemented correctly. Another big issue that we're working on is modifying the uh, the VA. Uh, our fastest growing group of veterans is our women veterans, and I don't know if you know this or not, but about ten years ago, the uh, it, unfortunately the VA was more like an old boys club, okay, and it was not built for the uh, modern veteran that we have, which is uh, those of uh, both male and female, and, and, and as I said, the, the female part is, is growing faster than any place else, so we might, we've got to make sure that we provide those services that are important to our female veterans. Uh, we're doing a good job of that, but we have to uh, update our veterans' VA system. Remember, the VA system, a lot of it still operates about like the 1940s and 1950s, and we're trying to get that modernized to the level we can. One of the big issues that also is out there that we've had a lot of trouble with been the night Nightmare of of all nightmares is the electronic health care changeover, which all five um, VAs, which are not even big VAs or small VAs, we tried to put it in. Uh, You would think that it would be very simple to switch over, but it ended up causing uh, stress on the uh, the the, our patients that we were providing care for, breakdowns in communications, all of these problems. But also what you want to remember about the VA is is that the VA is the second largest bureaucracy in the world. And what I've discovered as being a VA chair is if you think there isn't a problem, wait five minutes because there's going to, one going to come up. But we do have several bills that we're moving. As a matter of fact, we moved a group out of uh, committee today uh, that deal with everything from uh, uh, expanding uh, the speed at which uh, uh, a um, – that services can be rendered. Uh, there was uh, some an expansion of or, and adding to an existing program that that is very successful about um, get, putting veterans to work in technical tech, technical careers, uh, where they they have a, a sixty some percent graduation rate, which is pretty high for a government program, and a uh, no, I'm sorry, an eighty percent graduation rate with about a sixty five percent placement rate in jobs that are paying well over uh, $60,000, $70,000 a year. Um, so it's everything from you know implementing the GI Bill, the home loans. And then another thing that the VA deals with that people don't realize, every cemetery, every veteran cemetery in the United States and every veteran cemetery around the world and every veteran's monument around the world is under VA's control. Congressman, I wanted to ask you about some reporting that I 
did earlier this month um, about a food donation box that was put in at Scott Elementary um, just off the base. Oh, and, okay. And kind of the, the underlying reason they were putting this in is because 24% of active, active service members are food insecure. So yep. as the chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about that figure? And is there something that you would maybe want to do about it? Sure. Well, let me tell you that, and, and as a member of Congress, am I concerned about that? Yes, I am. As a VA chairman, I am concerned about that, but that jurisdiction would fall under the Department of Defense. And this is a problem that the Department of Defense has had before. This same type of situation occurred whenever I was in the Marine Corps in the 1980s. Uh, everybody, uh, everybody who was an E3 or below was paid at such a low level that they qualified for food stamps even though they couldn't get them because they were employed by the military. Now, that, and, and remember, I was married and, and had children back then. And, um, and it, was a, it was a very, very frustrating time. And that's, uh, we have made the investment. We increased last year the wages for our veterans. Now, what we knew, need to look at is also, uh, so you know this, a lot of it is a, uh, the BAQ. Now, the, what, what BAQ is basically what is provided for uh, married uh, uh, veterans uh, and their families. Uh, it gets increased on, uh, on a regular basis. It's something else we should look at. But we need to make sure that there is, uh, look, they're, 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 they're serving our nation. We need to make sure we make that investment. Uh, quick follow-up, and maybe along those same lines, uh, someone had mentioned to me when I was reporting that story that it's been a few years since the basic allowance for housing had increased. That, that was the BAQ. Okay. That's what okay. I'm talking about. Okay, okay. And so, yeah, that's um, basic that's, that's what that is. Okay, okay, good, good. Um, and so, like, you know, it's increased some because it kind of adjusts every year on local housing prices, but also, like it was in the 80s, I'm imagining, inflation is still way higher than... It should sure. be to keep economists, politicians, and the public happy. Sure. What world any should that that play in it? And the, and these are the things we have to look at every time uh, that we do each budget year, um, and that's also why they have you know committees of jurisdiction that they can keep track of. Okay, what's the cost of living in? Belleville area. What's the cost of living in L.A.? What's the cost of living in New York? And then understand the BAQ is adjusted based on where they station the, the men and women. A, a couple more questions before we let you go. On the debt ceiling issue, you, you voted bet. for You're uh, right uh, spe- <laughs> Speaker McCarthy's proposal. Yep. I, I, get, I understand like why sometimes members of the House pass things that are going to get bottled up in the Senate. Like You want to have mm-hmm. a statement of principles about where you stand on something. But yep. is there anything more than what you pass than just like messaging here? Could you actually get something some parts of this implemented in whatever the final agreement is? The, the answer is yes, if the president and the Senate will now come to the table. Let me, let me tell you the, what we were getting from the president before we passed this yesterday. No action, no negotiation, just send me a clean debt ceiling. That's, that doesn't work. That's never been done before. Anytime we increase the debt ceiling, which we've got to do, okay, because you can't go belly up on your on your debt you got to pay your debt it, it, it is even though i didn't vote for the last covid bill it, it, it still was spent out there and now we got to you know we can't just go debunk on our that on our uh, what we owe that being said you don't let the spending habits keep going the way they are and so what we were doing with this is we've sent that bill over because what they said was oh the republicans in the house will never come together and vote 
and get something passed. Well, now we did. So now it's in their bar, the, the ball's in their court. I believe that you'll see them all of a sudden wake up to the fact that they've got to come now and, and, and come to the table. We don't have to have everything that we put in there, but we sure have to sit down together, and we can't just all of a sudden keep raising the debt limit and let bad spending habits continue to happen out of this administration. We just can't. Our final question before we let you go. There was an yes. article in Politico earlier this week that you might have a primary challenger. He happens to be Darren Bailey, the Republican candidate for governor in 2022. And he apparently visited Mar-a-Lago last week. And you know President Trump and his his, uh, his uh, influence, especially on Southern yeah. Illinois. He came and did a rally for you. He did, too. Uh, do you fear Darren Bailey if he ends up deciding to run against you next year? Let me tell you that right now I'm focusing on doing the job. I don't I've never feared anyone running against me. This is a process that that is great because the people can run. But let me tell you this, I've got a great relationship with President Trump. Uh the only thing that President Trump and I ever disagreed on was letting Rod Bogoyevich out of jail. Um and and it still wasn't a disagreement. I just explained to him all of the reasons why I didn't think it was a good idea. All right, before I let you continue there, that had to be the most unanimous impeachment of anybody ever. Except one person. One person. I was the first one to ask for that. So you know so, that, con- right? Yeah, I, I did know that, but continue. <laughs> uh, I, I always I always love beating up and, on our and, former and, governor. And you should have been in the room for the three conversations I had with the president on that. But anyway. So but the president and I still have a very, very good relationship. Uh, matter of fact, I was at Malargo on President's Day, my wife and I, uh, visiting with him and also telling him we would be endorsing him during the next election. So, well, you know, I mean, the things that, if, if you notice, no one has said that Trump has endorsed them yet. Okay? So uh, I've got a great relationship, always have had with the president. My wife and I, uh, uh, well, my wife did prayer cards for the president, uh, which was a unique thing that was done uh, with his staff um, whenever he was in office. Uh, so we do have that good relationship. What, so will that affect uh, that race if it occurs? Well, I don't know. I don't know where the, where the, the president's going to be. I know what I'm doing. I'm providing services for the 34 counties that I represent to the best of my ability, and my staff is too. I'm carrying legislation that uh, represents the people that I represent and uh, am doing it from a position that uh, as a chairman of a committee uh, that is vitally important to this United States. And somehow I've been blessed by that, um, by my colleagues to put me there and my voters and the voters to put me here. And I'm going to keep doing that. And if somebody wants to challenge me and say that I'm not doing something right, I'll be glad to answer for anything I'm doing. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for talking with us and also giving us five extra minutes. This was supposed to be a (laughs) 20-minute interview. It's actually a 25-minute one, so we appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Is there any way for people to get a hold of you either on social media or any other other ways? You mentioned some of the the counties are small. They may not have good Internet, so if they need to use carrier pigeons. Right. (laughs) That's true. That, that's that's another issue. We can deal with digital divide, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but bost.house.gov, they can get hold of me there. Uh, they can look it up on uh, all of our offices and find the office that closest to them. We have main office locations in uh, Mascuda, Murfreesboro, and Effingham. 
and then uh, here here in D.C. as well, obviously. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long. Thank you so much, Congressman. Bye. a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.